This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. This week, we host longtime friend and fellow strength and conditioning coach, Rafael Ruiz. A brief review of his resume includes professional athletes from virtually any sports background you can think of. Currently, Raf is tied up coaching a ragtag group of folks headed to Rio. You may know them as the U.S. Men's and Women's Olympic Swim Team. As you'll hear, Ruiz is a man's man and a coach's coach. He's direct but respectful, inquisitive but skeptical. This balance helps provide Raph with a reputation that precedes him, and of course, the fact that his methods have yielded many amazing athletic performances. In this episode, the conversation meanders through the intricacies of learning and resorting to the optimal posture and position of sport, all the way down to the personality it takes to be an elite performer. Learn what Master Splinter has learned without the painstaking years of trial and error right here and right now on Power Athlete Radio. This is episode 132. What's happening, PAN? Welcome to Power Athlete Radio. Hashtag Power Athlete HQ. Hashtag Empower Your Performance. Hashtag k Coffee Co. Hashtag We Don't Fuck Around. Hashtag World Domination. <laughs> <laughs> this is Denny. I'm here with John, Luke, and Tex. And we have answered the calling. The forums have been buzzing. We want Roth. We need to hear his voice. What has he been up to? What's going on with Axis? How is he prepping the swim team for Rio? Well, brothers and sisters, ask and you shall receive. Roth, coach. Welcome Wait, to Power Athlete Danny, Radio. Before, before we let Roth just un- unleash the fury, <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, the John Q. public needs to know the type of loyalty that Power Athlete breeds, okay? So Tex has been traveling for six straight weeks across the globe, finally has a few days off, travels to Costa Rica for a wedding, and has decided to leave all of his friends at the barside pool so he could come (laughs) on Power Uh, Athlete Radio. No, no, no. no. You cannot mistake loyalty for stupidity. Oh, okay. I have long fucking confused loyalty and stupidity, and this is stupidity, not loyalty. I didn't know Tex had friends. I got I got five days. Well, loyalty this dates back to Kenny, Texas, so I, I owe the boys I'm hanging out with. But I also Raf gave me that opportunity, so I gotta I gotta connect. So I have this notebook. I brought my notes from Axis training from the League of Shadows. And, um, <laughs> I'm bringing I'm bringing the questions that from the most valuable lectures that I got. So we will go farther than. We'll, we'll go farther than answering the call. So let's, uh, let's well, well, before we get going, uh, all, all I want to know <laughs> is, uh, Rob, if Tex goes out in the ocean, what percentage chance that he will die? Because I know you tried to kill him numerous times in the swim. Oh, 99. 99, okay, good. good. That's, that's uh, I was when I met Raph, it was 100. So <laughs> you've come so far. 
it, when we were in New Zealand, uh, Tex and I like got in the car and did this like like they're like, oh, you should drive the coast. And I look and it was like something crazy. It was like 39 kilometers. And I'm like, oh, that's not that far. Uh, little little do they know that it's a uh, two lane road in like through the mountains. So like it takes us like an hour and a half to get to the coast. So we like go out. There's this killer beach. It's like some break and uh, we're like kind of walking. I'm like, man, is the water cold? And he's like, no, oh, it feels pretty good. So we strip down. I jump in the water. It's like sub fucking Arctic temperature. It's probably like 48, 50 degrees. So we're out there trying to like body surf. And uh, thank God it was low tide because we come to find out that this is like the beach where all like the tourists drown. Because it is such like a, I mean, it, it was crazy. Like waves were breaking, and as they were breaking, waves were coming back up, and a third wave was hitting it. So it was like ripto. Uh, it, it was like a fucking shoulder Undertow wash. riptide. Oh, dude, it was like it, it, it was like an undertow with a riptide. And like we went out there body surfed a little bit, and then we got out, and it was uh, it was pretty cool. But uh, it was definitely uh, New Zealand was a, was a cool spot. Could you see the fear of God in Texas eyes? Well, what uh, I think the one good thing about Tex is uh, he's so hairy that I think, like, uh, you know, that that extra body hair insulated him, whereas if he was a hairless cat, he might have got cold. Oh, there you go. There's balance, because my bone density, I'm in, I don't know if you all know this, I'm in the 96th percentile of the world, bone density, that makes me sink, and the hair brings me back up. It's perfect. <laughs> oh, God. It's a little roast on Tex. Good for him. Yeah. It's good. All right, Denny, unleash the beast. Raf, what uh, what have you been up to, man? Oh, I'm trying to change the world. Um, found found a little bit of a, a break in the action of of Axis, and and um, I, I I thought we would just completely uh, throw caution to the wind and um, get get some uh, get some guys up onto the podium in Rio um, for 2016. So we. We packed up and, and basically are doing a, a pretty much a year sabbatical up here in, in the beautiful country of North Carolina, um, which is really nice, Nice, by the way. I, I would add that this is gorgeous, God's green earth up here. And um, we're just trying to walk these guys and, and give them the best opportunity to uh, stand on the podium and listen to the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, you had said that you're at Queen's University. <laughs> Yeah, we uh, one of the things that uh, Team Elite uh, is based out of here. Uh, we are under the direction of uh, the U.S. Olympic head coach David Marsh, and we use pretty much every venue we can get our hands on here. Uh, the majority of our what we call short course work, and that's anything under Olympic distance, we do at Queens University. A great relationship with this school um, that they allow us the use of their weight room and their full facilities and their athletic training facilities and so on and so forth. Um, and then anything else, um, we're picking up as we get closer and closer to Rio, we're picking up all of our long course, which is the Olympic distance, 50-meter pool, pool work, and we're trying to get up that, eventually get it up to the, the six and the seven days a week uh, uh, training sessions um, over at a couple of other pools within the area. So today we're lucky we get to be at uh, Queens University, and it's a, this is a, a beautiful institution, Division Two. You know, I remember uh, I, I remember the CrossFit football Naperville, the the most famous seminar that united like everybody for this world domination, and it was you um, and John were there, and Ben and Kate, and you, a, part of your lecture for that was was like the Venn diagram, um, you know, like the uh, the three P's. 
you know, mm-hmm. had that whole lecture, and how can you like connect some of that knowledge, some of that lecture into what you're doing with these swimmers now? You know, this this high of a level of athlete, you know, prepping them like for the Olympics. You know what's crazy is um, uh, the the common misconception is. Um, they are very good because they are very talented, but it doesn't change our basic fundamentals. Um, you can take a million swimmers in the world, and one of them will have a seven-foot wingspan. The rest of us will not, and that is the person that is going to be considered an elite-level accomplished swimmer. Um, so it still boils down to the fact that you take anything, and I've been very fortunate to have worked and had the opportunity to work with all arenas of, of pretty much every sport I, that, that I care to work with, including you know from our military prep program. Um, it's those guys are the ones that take a gifted athlete or a gifted individual, some capacity of having um, talent, of God-given talent. But you do your fundamentals correctly, and that's what I'm trying to do here: is get these guys to understand that 3P model of what you're doing. Let's make sure it is purposeful make sure that you have a reason for it where you know one of the first reasons we walked in here is um, we the coaches said hey our guys need to swim stronger when we're compared to the other swimmers around the world we don't swim strong and I said okay I, I completely am on board with that I said define that I said what would it take for you to consider the athletes to swim stronger and they said well we watch these videos of um, swimmers in Scandinavia doing, you know, 100-pound pull-ups. And, you know, there's these guys in Romania that are bench pressing 315 for reps. And I'm like, okay, so does that make them a better swimmer? And I said, you need to make sure that what you're asking the athletes to do in terms of putting an excessive amount of volume and stress on these um, in a sport that's already dominated by overuse injuries, um, that it is purposeful. And so part of that whole 3P model is we're trying to take to what we consider a, a pretty pretty archaic, pretty uh, juvenile training system for developing aquatic space athletes. Well, Ralph, I mean, in actuality, uh, there really isn't a strength conditioning program designed for swimmers from a young age. I mean, for the most part, most of these guys were in the pool swimming, and the idea of actually doing some land-based, ground-based, uh, weight room-style training probably didn't come up until maybe in college, and now is only, uh, you know, even uh, slightly more important. So do you think it's maybe, like, and, and I hate to say it, it, it's not like football where you're 14 years old, you're a freshman in a team, you're following a program, you're lifting weights, and it's indoctrinated into the program, and it's part of what you do for your sport. It seems like swimming is, uh, it doesn't really go down that road. Completely, completely. I mean, when we look at the evaluation of a swimmer, um, being strong in the water is really one of the last pieces of the puzzle that we have to to get the athlete to do. And, and like you said, that doesn't play into account until, I mean, when you look at the uh, the development and the peaking of a Olympic-based swimmer, you know, two quadrillions ago when um, eight years ago, they, they literally – you know, once you hit 20 years old, you were you were over the hill. It was time for you to pack up and leave. And now they're starting to understand uh, the weight training, how it really increases injury resistance and increases longevity within your sport. It allows you to 
um, push more into a, an area where you have the probability that you can take that margin of error, all of these factors that contribute to somebody being an awesome swimmer, they can finally gel once you're into your into your mid-20s, and that's what they're finding, especially with sprinters. You're finding that the, the, the sprinters will start peaking at a later age, and so can we use weight training to get an athlete to be able to sustain doing a mode of locomotion that the human body really isn't meant to do, so now we have to figure out a way to strengthen that body to be able to withstand that in a medium that is you know, 800 times denser than air. So every movement you do is resisted. Everything that you do is taxed and coupled with the fact that most people don't want to drown. And, I mean, it's really based off of that. And then you put that psychomotor component in it, and, and you've got a pretty nasty recipe for disaster if somebody isn't prepared for it. Raf, could yeah. you talk about the five traits that you're looking for for an elite swimmer? Oh, you know, one of the things um, we, we try to figure it out uh, recently, if you guys have been following along, um, we've got a swimmer here, Ryan Lochte, uh, one of the best swimmers in the world, um, probably the most known swimmer around the world, um, right up there with, with Michael Phelps. And uh, the New York Times came down, and they um, recently uh, – we kind of developed, uh, David Marsh developed a underwater turn for him because underwater, upside down, dolphin kick, he is the, he is a, a, a fish. I mean, if you were to look at him underwater, he is an amazing, amazing creature. And New York Times and all these people are coming down trying to study why is a human being that good on an underwater dolphin kick. And we kind of laid out some of the things, and it's really interesting where number one is talent. It's uh, uh, We talk about presence, what you're blessed with. And an elite-level swimmer, um, like I said, a million swimmers in the world, um, certain swimmers have, for instance, we have some of our female swimmers have measured up to 15 to 18, almost 20 degrees of hyperextension at the knee. And – as a ground-based athlete, every one of us as a coach is like, God bless, I don't ever want to touch that, but that is a desired trait within the swimming world. You know, they uh, they call that, uh, you know, obviously a hyperextended knee, but in horse racing, that's actually called back of the knee, and they won't run horses that are back of the knee. And for Rob remembers when I owned racehorses, uh, I actually had a horse that was back of the knee, and I couldn't sell her. So we had to sell her as a pet, and I lost money. So back of the knee is bad, but for swimming... Back of the knee is good. Put that horse in the pool. Dude, we should have aquatic <laughs> horses. I could have told her that. So uh, 20 degrees of, of hyperextension in the knee. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things is we, we, you look at that, and normally that's something that you know nobody ever wants, but they're given that ability. Um, a lot of our swimmers have that um, what's called a swimmer's butt. It's actually one of the things that they like is that anteriorly rotated pelvis where you kind of have that that hip tucked up underneath you um any power-based athlete you know you look at that and you're like wow the guy doesn't have an ass or that girl doesn't have an ass um but within the swimming community that coupled with a kyphotic curve will give a swimmer that nice long flat back that allows them to float their hips in the water and so you take all of these little things um hypermobile ankles you take a knock need, you know, within the swimming community, you look at that and you're like, wow, you know, that creates a better streamlined position. So just having that, the way that God puts you together gives you, 
gives you a, an advantage that nobody else will have. Um, the other aspect is body positioning. That contributes to better body positioning. Um, as Tex quickly found out and Luke found out, everything is about body positioning in the water. Um, the lower your hips are, the more you're going to struggle and you're going to fight. Um, we have, like I said, uh, we have some of our athletes with great body positioning. Uh, when they do their dolphin kick, uh, they create uh, the hydrodynamics creates these vortices. They're uh, literally turbulent uh, tornadoes of, of turbulence that, that are pushing the athlete forward through the water. Um, you either take advantage of that like a elite swimmer does or you get caught up and drowned in it like your New Zealand experience. Um, but a good swimmer has, whether they know it or not, has the ability to take advantage of those vortices. Um, entry and exit in and out of the water, uh, one of the tough things for non non-aquatic space athletes to understand is and and this goes along the lines of everything that we talked about in developing athletes in protecting developing and protecting posture and positioning um, when you watch an elite level swimmer it's really hard to pick up but where your hand enters the water an elite level swimmer's hand will stay there and they will actually launch their body over that position so where their hand enters and where they what's called catching the water they will catch that water and then they will use all everything to lock that position in and then all the other musculature will launch them over that hand position um, and it's it's a feeling in the water that a lot of people it, it, you either do it really really well naturally or you have to take you know 30 years to try to develop it uh, number four is kinesthetic awareness um, understanding and feeling water going down the back of your neck, understanding and feeling how it is to swim skinny. That's that's a huge thing where you take athletes with these big, broad shoulders. Like if you ever stand next to Michael Phelps, he's got really, really broad shoulders. But when he gets into a streamlined position, he looks like a pencil. So his ability to slightly and very manipulate his joints to get into the skinniest possible position he can possibly do um, and then the last piece of the puzzle is power output, um, and that's the part that we were talking about earlier is can you get the athletes to produce power in the water through strong connection? So once I catch the water, can I forcibly launch myself over, or do I just kind of flop over top? And that's one of the, uh, that's one of the key components between whether somebody's going to be a decent swimmer or whether somebody's going to be standing in, in Rio in, in August. Are, are all these things uh, learned? I mean, or is this just something that is just kind of God-given ability? I mean, because what it sounds like is the the skill set, and more importantly, the uh, you know the anthropometrical me measurements, and just really the uh, I, I guess you could say body makeup of the swimmer is actually the opposite of what we're looking for for ground-based athletes. So we probably come across people that are just so awkward that uh, for you know for more importantly for like for field sports. And we put them in the water. I mean, so I'm just wondering if some of these things are just naturally, uh, they just have it or they don't, or is there really a learning curve, or is this something that can be taught? It's both. Um, it's one of the things that, that we were referring to earlier. Um, you're never going to develop 20 degrees of hyperextension in your knee, um, and if you do, you're, you're going to be in the hospital. Um, but what you can do is 
not allow inflexibilities to be a hindrance to you. Um, the, the big difference, and this is a reason why I always say every strength leadership coach, every performance coach should dive into swimming proverbially, um, is because everything they do is based off of efficiency. Um, it's no different than um, working with uh, drag racing cars, boats, high-speed boats, is how can I shave off inefficiencies? How can I reduce the amount of force drag and form drag so that the, the boat or the car, whatever it is that I'm racing, can go faster? Um, case in point, we have a swimmer that um, in a 200 fly, 150 meters, he is the fastest, most powerful swimmer in the world, but because of his inefficiencies through his shoulder, he doesn't have that Michael Phelps-esque flexibility, mobility in his shoulder. He dies. By the time that his energy system can't keep up with the fever's pace, now all of a sudden his shoulders, to get his arms out of the water, his shoulders become so immobile because we know that mobility is a dynamic principle. Um, just because you can do it when you're fresh, that's the thing that most athletes forget is as you get tired, it's getting worse. Your strength is dropping, your speed is dropping, your conditioning is dropping, your pain threshold is starting to drop, and your flexibility is starting to drop with every step that you take. If I'm running a 400 meters, my range of motion is dropping and dropping and dropping. It's the same in swimming. So if he could get his shoulder mobility, um, what's referred to as reserve, like uh, like a Usain Bolt can cruise through all of the prelims because he can jog all the way through. So he has speed reserve. Um, it's the same exact thing with mobility. If his mobility can be at least good enough where he doesn't suck, then there's a really good chance that he can be standing on the podium come Rio. So there's things that you can work on that you, you don't allow those things to be a hindrance but and, and, and hopefully make up ground on the fact that you don't have hyperextended knees or you don't have that swimmer's butt or you don't have, um, you know, X factor this, X factor that. So, Roth, in the case of in the case of that shoulder mobility or that mobility reserve, is that where you come in and you're working with these guys? That's exactly where I come in. Is um, My job is to try to fix things. It's uh, is try to create solutions to problems. You know, as they're watching his pace and as they're watching his stroke count and his volume and his distance per stroke um, completely alter uh, because, you know, all of us that have been in the water know that the moment you get tired, the water lets you know. It says, no, no more. You're done. Um, from that aspect, uh, my job is to try to create a solution. One of the things we found is that a lot of swimmers don't work on, just like all overhead athletes, is T-spine mobility is can they get that shoulder blade to articulate around that rib cage and spine uh, without negatively affecting its position, uh, the position of the spine or, or the rib cage. And so my job is to go in and say, where are we bleeding? Where are, we, where are the inefficiencies that don't allow somebody to maximize, if not elevate, potential? So in working with the, the swim athletes and with, I guess, the elite of the elite. Elite. <laughs> elite. We are elite. elite. What, uh, what do you find, what do you find that, what has been, or what have you found most shocking that, that these guys are incapable of doing? Is there, is it, is there a global issue with, with uh, elite level swimmers or like high level Olympic caliber? It's the curse of the gifted. It's um, 
it's it's something that we've been preaching from day one is the fact that um, their capacity is so great at at all of the variables and and you could take any sport um, but you take swimming for instance you take all of those things that we just said their capacity is so high that they could suck at some things and still blow all of us out of the water um, and so it's amazing that they don't do the fundamentals the basic things um, they're immobile they don't stretch as well as they stretch uh, they don't uh, they don't have that connection within the weight room that says everything that you do in here needs to drive skill acquisition um, what has happened over the years because they're so infantile in their approach to performance training is the fact that um, they said hey look at these guys Olympic lifting um, and look at how much power it develops we'll put that into a program and look at these guys that are doing shoulder stuff with volleyball and baseball we'll put that into our program and and they take all of these things and they shove them in there but they have yet to have enough maturity uh, within the development of that program to, to, to emulsify it to say yes let's get stronger at bench press but we're gonna get stronger at bench press because we need the connection of your right shoulder to your left hip because that would be good mechanics for a freestyle pool and that is the, the, the part that they're missing and it's just amazing to me in a world that is so skill driven it's like it's like uh, training sharpshooters it's, it's like training archery everything that we do in practice is dialed into the infinitesimal um, fraction of a degree to, to, to acquire this but then we go into the weight room and, and we're just big Neanderthals and we're just throwing and smashing weights around. Raph, could you talk about the opportunity that you have right now in that you're right next to a pool? So if you see something within their swimming or a coach ask you to help with skill acquisition, you can apply your tools and then get them in the pool versus other strength and conditioning programs or coaches who they're in the weight room, not next to the field or the pool. You know, that is huge. That is, uh, that's really the, you know, people ask uh, the development of, of the program. Um, it's really based off of that. Um, I spent years standing on a football field listening to coaches scream until they were blue in the face about, you know, Johnny Blow, get your butt down. Well, he can't because we never gave him the tools. We never gave him the mobility. We never gave him the strength down there. We never gave him the leverage capacities. And so the coach is screaming until, again, he's blue in the face. But in the end, the strength coach is the one that failed because we didn't give the position coach an athlete with greater what we call kinetic creativity. I want to make you move so well that no matter what the coach, no matter how outrageous the coach's demands are, you can accomplish those. And so we have a wonderful benefit of, of me working with two of the top swimming coaches in the world here between Bob and, and David um, and they say Raphael look at that see how he's not getting his hips high he's not getting yada 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 how do we fix that and immediately we'll pull swimmer A out of the water I'll do this strengthening exercise I'll do this stretching exercise and number one give them those tools but more importantly give them that kinesthetic awareness because one of the things that we recognize is habits um, none of us recognize what our habits are. If I said, hey, uh, you know, your right knee has turned out 12 degrees and your left knee has only turned out 7, you would never know because it's a habit that you developed and you've lost that kinesthetic sense of where it is. It's positioning within space. So that's part of my issue. My job is to say, hey, 
do you feel this? Do you feel that's not in the right position? Once we do that, then it allows the athlete to start to dial in and say, okay, I do feel that. Now I can correct it because once you know it, that's part of the problem. That's the major part of the problem. Now they know, then they can start to address it themselves. No, I, I was uh, just going back to what you said about, um, you know, like uh, the basic idea of knee benders. I mean, for years, and Rock has heard this too, coaches screaming uh, really in, especially offensive line in most positions in football, like the, the difference maker. And when they cut a guy or they keep a guy, there's always a deal they call he's a knee bender versus a waist bender. And that ability to bend your knees, play with a low center of gravity. And, uh, you know, for years, I always believed that it was something that inherently just knew how to do. And then we figured out that actually it was a learned trait that people have to learn to bend their knees and how to play and not play straight-legged. And it's, uh, I mean, I guess it's just like everything. If you can put the model in place and you can get somebody to understand what you wanted, want done and then you can get them to repeat it enough times and then repeat it in, you know, and really just maintain that through all, you know, phases, whether it be in the, in the weight room, on the field, however it is, all of a sudden hopefully it becomes a, a habit and then it becomes the default, um, you know, but just how many people have the ability to get to that point I think becomes the more difficult issue. Absolutely, and, and I would like to uh, – the thing that really dials us in here is because of it's such lofty goals that that uh, we use the term reserve a lot is get faster than you think you need to. Um, as we prep track and swimmers, um, we always tell them you do have to get fast, but you have to get faster than that because you need to be able to tap into something during the finals, and, and that's the big difference between somebody prepping. Um, when I was at the University of Tampa, we, we had Olympic trial qualifiers, and that was different than what we're doing here because there it's like, hey, we're all having we're going to a party because somebody qualified for the trials, even though we knew well that they were never going to make it onto the Olympic team versus here prepping our athletes, it's, how do I get you to understand you need to get even faster than you think you can go because you need to have enough of a reserve so that you can scale back and swim at 90 and 95% coasting through prelims and semifinals so that you can turn it on during the finals. And that's a difficult thing for a lot of people. Most athletes will never grasp that concept. So, Raph, I think this is an opp uh, opportune time to get into kind of work capacity versus replication of speed and then cyclical versus acyclical. Uh, so I, I passed along that, that article to you, and I'm just curious if a sport like swimming in which it's just being perfect as possible every single rep but in the same movement versus a field sport, how has that changed your uh, – how has your approach to these two different athletes changed and – uh, I'm just kind of curious there. Um, what's interesting, when, when we looked at, um, I literally, when I knew I was diving into this, I had to go back and revisit a lot of the, uh, a lot of the lecture, a lot of my old notes in developing sprinters. Uh, one of the things that we looked at was um, something that makes a field sport completely different than cyclical sport is what's called central pattern generators. And what that is is, is basically oscillating neurons you get a certain pattern that becomes cyclical, not necessarily the shape of a circle, but a constant continuous pattern where there's not stopping and starting, then 
that mechanism can almost run on its own. There, there doesn't have to be a re reactionary force there. It just has to be um, step over, step over, step over, step over, or pull through the water, pull through the water, pull through the water, where your, your shoulders are just constantly uh, turning like a wheel kind of issue. And so that becomes a completely different metabolic demand um, where a field sport is, is truly ATP, even if, even if you do start to, to play into that anaerobic threshold where the speed is something that you can't maintain, when you start working with central pattern generators, you can just really dial into the, the, the contractibility of a tendon and just get that motor unit to fire so that all of the motor units are firing cohesively and it almost becomes autonomic for the athlete to swim where they can just turn their brain off and just type in run, hit play, and then they go. With, with sprinters, do you ask them to just turn it off and go, or do you want them aware? Do you kind of, uh, or I don't know if, if Marsh teaches like the speed reserve in which you have something a little left in the tank to just kick it in at the end? Both, both. Um, during training, we, we spend a lot of time with uh, minutia details of getting an athlete to dial into what we're trying to teach them, but all the while we're layering in a psychomotor response that we want them to understand during the race. So, um, for instance, going back and forth between two drills, they could do um, weighted pulleys, and we really want them to work on a catch position. So, once your hand enters the water, it kind of drops down to about top of the head height. And for a swimmer, that's really your power phase. Once once a swimmer catches water with their forearm there, that's when they're really taught to drive and really pull the water past them. Um, and so whatever coaching cue we come up for that where we say, you know, um, thump and pull, thump and pull, thump and pull, but eventually we just want that to carry over into torpedo. Or if, if somebody has a specific emotional cue to swimming fast, we try to dial that back in so that that emotional response is the only thing that we're prepping them for when they race. So during our, our pre-show talk, you talked uh, just a lot about essentially swimming sparring partners and driving that competition against another another person. So is this uh, is this kind of what you're trying to accomplish with that? Absolutely. It's um, anybody who's had the pleasure of working with swimmers will know um, it's really within that that arena that. Uh, they compete and they just love to compete, and it's a, it's a it's a win lose for for swim coach uh, for swim strength and conditioning coaches uh, because imagine you're getting the best of what what high level athletes offer, but you're also getting the worst in terms of the the way they're built and the orthopedic considerations. Uh, but you're getting athletes with unbelievable VO2 maxes and high pain thresholds, and athletes that know and want to compete. So uh, today, like they're, they're, they're squatting today um, and they're doing four by fours. So they just want to get in there and, and throw 300 pounds on the bar and just go when there should be some sort of systems that's kind of work up towards that. Um, but they just, all they know is I'm going to go hard, I'm going to go fast. And, uh, and I don't know anything else outside of that. So we try to we try to educate them on that principle, but but control that animal as much as we can. All right. So just kind of going back to when Tech started bringing up like the cyclical and acyclical, <clears throat> I 
I thought of uh, a few episodes ago we had Rob Miller on, and he's like OG CrossFit rock climbing, and he had a he had like a an article he put out years ago, and he developed what he called a map of athletic performance. Are you familiar with that at all, Roth? No, I'm not. Like bullseye. Well, it kind of looks hey. like a bullseye, and on. Well, uh, well, then, yeah, Danny, let me explain it a little bit. Uh, Rob Miller is like uh, one of the top long distance climbers in the world, like three weeks on a, on a face of El Capitan type deal. And he got into CrossFit. He was from Santa Cruz, and somebody brought him in, and he had this idea that if he, you know, increased work capacity should translate over to his sport. And when he saw that the CrossFit was actually negatively affecting his ability to climb, he uh, had this kind of come-to-Jesus moment realization and realized that this isn't what he, he thought it was. So he pulled back away and he created this map of excel of athletic development. And, uh, you know, and he had his uh, repetitive versus non-repetitive sports, uh, you know, Olympic weightlifting, um, you know, strongman was kind of uh, another one. I mean, sports right. that, uh, the, yeah, yeah, the training basically is repetitive movement. Uh, versus non-repetitive things like football, rugby, soccer, where you can practice for them, but at the, you know, but once you get into the fight, you never know what's truly going to happen. So uh, he, you know, basically created this whole deal, and and as you got closer to the center, it all of a sudden became, uh, you know, more focused within that. And he, uh, his contention was that just basic barbell training, in conjunction with training for your sport, was actually the hands down the best thing you could do and he actually found that in actually getting stronger and increasing barbell uh, work and just some basic you know uh, primal type movements uh, coupled with actually training his sport both uh, long and short distances doing like uh, explosive type stuff like bouldering versus long distance climbing that actually the mix of short and long with barbell training was actually the perfect recipe for his for his sport so that's right. a little back a little and, background and, and John if you remember it was actually it was like you started at the center as a beginner, and you, as you worked out, you became, you worked towards the elite. Oh, that's and right, I, that's right. Yeah, and I kind of got, like, uh, he talked about uh, those things that you said, like the barbell stuff, but it was also about, like, training at, like, a high intensity. Well, Remember, yeah. it was, like, anything at 70%, like, if those, if you get caught up in, like, 70% uh, of at an, you know, of an intensity, he called that, like, garbage time. So well, when, I heard, when I heard Roth explaining that, I was like, I, I wonder how how much time do these swimmers spend in the water racing at, like, what would be high intensity, and how much time is it, like, 50% or less? Well, or it, uh, possible? Uh, Denny, I think we were thinking a little bit about, like, the Charlie Francis stuff where it was either – you're either moving faster than 92 percent, or you're or you're going at over uh, at under 75. So there's either active recovery or peak type of stuff, and he called that the no man's land. And that was similar to what um, uh, Rob Miller found out that like either you're doing some form of active recovery work or long you're moving with this movement, or you got to go max intensity. That there was a kind of a no man's land, which is ironic, seeing as that most strength training is done within like a 75 to 85 percent level. So. What we realized, and this was always a question I would have loved to ask Charlie Francis, was, uh, you know, you always talked about this no man's land and the ability, like, you know, you got to run fast to get fast. Mm -hmm. But yet, if you know, the most strength development is really built within that no man's land. So I think what he's asking, Roth, is like, 
when you guys are in the water, is there uh, like like is is it similar to sprint stuff where hey I need you to swim this at you know ninety plus percent of your fastest time, or like are they always going balls to the wall? Is it kind of a max effort yeah. type deal? Right. For the most part, really what we try to do is again based off of kinesthetic awareness, um, a drill that. If, if you take any swim stroke and you break that down into X amount of components, um, they try to come up with as many drills as possible to get an athlete to feel the water. And then once they feel that, they integrate that into race pacing. So it's it's go hard, go fast. Uh, one of the things that we, we always use here is it's either on or off. Um, whatever your dominant, what, what's called your prime stroke. So if you are a, if you're a metal control, tender for the, the, the 200 free, then whenever you're swimming the free, you are swimming at your race pace. It is, it is, you're, you're going breakneck speed and I'm going to, and I'm going to find, um, really awesome thing. They have this thing called a Luma lanes here, um, in conjunction with finding good sparring partners to swim against. Um, they have, uh, this guy developed a series of lights that are on, on the bottom of the pool and you could dial and program whatever it is that you want. So if you wanted to um, race against the world record pace, you just plug it into the computer and then you swim against this light that is just, you know, bouncing back and forth on the bottom of the pool like Pong. So everything is really based off of if you are doing your prime stroke, you are you are trying to race or you're trying to train at a certain pace. So with uh with that pace, is it um you know I mean is it like the sprint stuff where hey I need you to run with or swim within ninety five percent of your best time, or every time yes. you're getting in the water is it fucking balls out? No, it's it's normally within that ninety five balls out kind of um it's not always balls out it's not always ninety five it's it's uh, depending on what they want to accomplish that I mean we do a lot with lactate threshold here, um that's a big difference between the swimming community versus other sports uh the fifty. The 50 is the shortest thing that they do here, um, and you know, and that thing is you know 23 seconds, which would equate to a 200-meter dash uh, within the track and field world, which is you know speed endurance. Once you start getting to lactate threshold at 200 meters, so anything after that becomes you know highly, highly uh, irregular. And one of the most amazing things, which most people don't recognize about swimming, um, if you get a chance, uh, look up Katie Ledecky. Um, who this past uh, world championships, uh, she did something that is pretty absolutely amazing in terms of superhuman. And she ended up winning every freestyle event from the 200 meter on up, which is basically unheard of. It, it literally would be, it would be like uh, Usain Bolt winning the, the 200, the 400, the 800 and the mile um, all at Rio. And, and this, uh, this woman, you know, did that, and it, it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing to be able to accomplish something like that. It's it's probably something that that may never ever be done ever again. Up with the um, uh, so obviously, like they they bang out their uh, their first time, or they they do their first swim. They swim within ninety five. You know, obviously a smoker. They get done. Then uh, take us through. Is there a like active recovery swim? Do they do something to clear lactate? Are they testing lactate levels? I mean, like, what do they do for their? Or is there some form of active recovery to get them ready Absol for another swim? Absolutely, everything is based off of those cycles. Just like you said, if we're doing lactate threshold, um, everything from finger pricks, um, basic uh, rate of perceived exertion. Um, heart rate, we do a lot of heart rate variability testing where as soon as they get out, take your heart rate, measure your heart rate, 
Um, once that thing drops back down to 130 beats, then immediately start your next set kind of issue. So, um, but a lot of it really is based off of that skill acquisition. So it goes back to drilling. You might go back to a easy streamlined drill of finding that catch position nice and smooth, nice and easy, do a couple of rounds of that, and then get back to your integrative race pacing. Is there anything that uh, you've come across or anything that you've observed that we could incorporate into our training in the weight room and more of our ground-based stuff in terms of that lactic acid threshold type stuff? Um, the thing that, that that's the hardest, which, you know, obviously – being a, a sadist, you're going to want to try, but we do a lot with breath holds um, and the ability when you swim a 50 free, which sounds completely ridiculous for non-swimmers, but they're swimming a 50 free and they do no breath. Um, and when you watch the Olympics, those guys will swim across the pool and they're literally breakneck speed, you know, trying to trying to swim away from a shark, um, splash and dash kind of issue, and they're they're holding their breath. So a lot of, of what we do is based off of that principle is can you maintain composure? Can you still perform um, in that high lactate threshold environment and holding your breath? That is the, one of the fastest ways to drive your lactate up. Um, you just have to be careful you know, because people will pass out. So like I'm thinking maybe we try, I don't know, let's put 315 on the bar, max rep back squats while holding your breath. Yes. With, that with sounds uh, bad no, 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 no. With occlusion training. With the occlusion. <laughs> uh, so, so what we do is, is we, put, we put leg uh, knee wraps high, high in the groin, so we'll occlude yeah. the top of the okay. quad. I'm not, I'm 315. Uh, and here's the deal. You gotta handcuff yourself to the bar. No, 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 no. You, you have to fucking put on a belt. So yeah, you, so you take a big breath, you push out the belly, and you hold it, and you have the belt on occlusion training 315 max squat. Is, 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 there like weight, is there weight on the belt? Oh, good idea. No. That'd be crazy. Yeah, that, that would be crazy. But it's actually that, that, that belt that you wear, text with like the massive 25-pound belt buckle. So it, it could be weight. <laughs> the, the, one that you can block, the one that you can block bullets like fucking Wonder Woman with her fucking wristbands. Well, <laughs> I, I often wear my uh, boots slash Olympic lifting shoes. <laughs> so, uh, Tex, now that you're down in Costa Rica, are you wearing that belt buckle and boots with your with your shorts, like your uh, uh, like your uh, uh, board shorts? No, 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 I'm still rocking the jeans, but now I just don't have a shirt on. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I think maybe it's a, a disclaimer, as we were just kidding about that back squat while holding your breath. Do, do does no our listeners need to know? No, you were. Nah, fuck oh, fuck's well, sake. It, well, it, we might they should factor we that. Can yeah, yeah, we're gonna try. We'll we'll try. We we might it might find its way into a program. And if we make it next week, we'll let you know how it went. Rafa, uh, we've been uh, so I was going back and looking at some old programming stuff, and I had done some of the inclusion training, uh, and the uh, like. I was just kind of reading up about it, and then uh, Tom Inkledon, he uh, he sent me this whole like research study about occlusion. So I was like, oh, let's give it a try. So we've been using like some occlusion for the top of the quads, the calves, and the biceps. And uh, uh, you would uh, the comments from people about it are so hilarious. Like, uh, oh my god, about four days of doms, all this problem. I'm like, you know, you guys, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, in terms of just like uh, you know, muscle building, hypertrophy, and driving cytokines and a lot of different stuff. So that's why the joke has been going around about trying to include everything. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's all good. But uh, like, is there um, is you know, and I always wonder this, especially uh, you know, working at the levels that you have. Was there anything surprising, or more importantly, like amazing, disconcerting? Because I mean, like. I always think, like, look, looking from the inside, I mean, think, think about how many strength coaches we've run into that, like, their dream is to be an NFL strength coach, and, like, if they ever get there, they're going to be so disappointed uh, by what Absolutely. they saw. Like, you know, like you know, you standing on the outside, now you're there, you're kind of like, wow, this isn't what I really thought, or this is better than I thought, or, you know, is there anything that you've really just kind of opened your eyes or kind of changed a little bit or changed your mindset a little? Um, I think the only thing that really changes for me, and that's really more dialing into um, athlete management, um, and that's the one thing that if, if you're not used to working with athletes at a high level, uh, dealing with, um, just imagine programming for, for the, the local class that you have in your gym, now all of a sudden, like right now, I've got guys that are in the, in the heat of a, a pretty nasty cycle and I've got one guy that has a photo shoot in LA then I have another guy that's going to uh, the swimming awards or there's three that are going to the swimming awards in LA this weekend um, I've got two that are competing in Italy so it's like the, the tough part is is managing th those high-level schedules and and dealing with a lot of athletes that you know the, Relatively young and as a professional sport, uh, but they but they want that same. They want to be, uh, they want what football has. They want that um, the fame that uh, pro basketball and pro baseball have. Um, but but there is it really isn't a ton of money in it. We have we're we're fortunate. We have a couple of athletes that make a crap ton of money from swimming more than than the average human being will ever make. But for the most part, it's uh, it's human management and from a training aspect is dialing into like what I said is is the psychomotor control is getting the athletes to understand the emotion that you train at that you do a set that you do an exercise that you acquire skill at of, of getting that to tie into their racing and and that's the hard part of, of getting uh, of managing that athlete from from training them in the weight room and getting them to perform in the arena Roth, what give us a day in the life of now that you? I would imagine that the the training and the practices are quite demanding at times for a lot of these athletes. What is it? What does your day look like? Oh God, um, I get up really early and I get in all of my readings, um, as many readings as I can get in uh, before I have to hit the road. Um, we actually do a military prep program here um, at a local gym. Um, so a friend of mine actually runs a facility up here that he, he preps guys, uh, current operators and uh, young athletes that are that, that aspire to be, you know, the next uh, uh, Navy SEAL or Marine Recon, so on and so forth. So we try to get them um, into that selection phase. Um, and then if I have an opportunity, I try to get in a workout depending on what day it is. And then the sprinters lift in the morning because those are our big boys. Uh, we want to take advantage of all, you know, the the testosterone and the growth hormone flowing through their system in the morning, um, and we want to try to keep those guys out of the water a lot more than the middle distance guys. So, uh, we'll, we'll put those guys through their lift, and then I'll send them over to the pool. 
Um, if the middle distance guys aren't lifting immediately, then I go to the pool and we do in water what we call dry land um, ASAP, uh, accelerated skill acquisition uh, programming, and I'll do some of that. And then the middle distance, they will lift, and then uh, we'll take a break and we do double days. So we give them a small break. We'll have coaches meetings. Uh, we'll go over film. We'll watch the guys uh, biomechanical analysis, figure out who's sucking at what, and we try to, to find solutions for that. And then in the afternoon, uh, the team will come together on a normal basis. We'll do dry land activation, which is uh, corrective exercises, manual resistance, shin, T-spine mobility, um, a lot of manual resistance work, um, accentuated negative yielding isometric work um, so that they can develop the ability to, to protect certain positions. Um, and then swim practice, and then go home. Um, sometimes I have to throw in a pickup raider from daycare, um, get in the water with some guys once in a while. But that's a typical day in the day in the life of Raphael. No rest. Oh, no rest of the wicked. Yeah. Boy, and those of you guys, when he was talking about early about readings, Roth actually works as a psychic. So he has to have four or five people come in, usually read some tarot cards and a couple palms. So, you know, when, yeah, don't, don't be confused. I mean, he's big into the future. He's big into, uh, you know, uh, what is it, uh, astro uh, astrology? I don't know, ask Roth. Well, astrology? Yeah, astrology. <laughs> He's like, the moon and the stars have lined up. Today's a good day to back squat. So, yeah, it's so that's how he does his program. Oh, yeah, it's totally based on uh, uh, lunar cycles. Uh, lunar cycles. You know what's funny, and, and we talk about this, um, They everything is uh, – everybody wants the latest and greatest high-tech thing, and, and you know, with, with all professional athletes and with, with all athletes, everybody wants the latest and greatest um, and, and you asked earlier what, what's something that's eye-opening and shocking where, you know, all of a sudden they're, they're concerned about, about buying $10,000 gloves and boots that are, you know, battery packed to keep their hands and feet warm because the ready rooms are cold uh, when in fact there's, there's a lot of other things that we can probably address that, that would cause a, a significant more increase in performance than, than cold hands and cold feet. So there's little things like that where, they want the sexiness of, of what do the you know Carolina Panthers get access to uh, versus hey you know what let's just go to let's just go to Sports Authority and buy some hand warmers and then close the book on that one. Uh, Raph, I was I was down there for uh, some of the the deloading week and an off week, and you were telling me you were taking them down the lake lake you were taken to a field to play some games. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you talk about some of the stuff you do to keep training interesting for these guys whose life is training? Oh, my God. You know, the crazy thing is we, um, especially over the summer, we spend as much time trying to come up with as many options to keep them active and keep them out of a chlorinated pool. Um, and we do everything from, you know, I, I took the guys and, and we taught them, you know, uh, Filipino combat systems one day, taught them knife and stick work. We taught them Muay Thai. Um, we took them paddle boarding. Um, we, we let them play around in the lake. Um we around here there's great hiking so uh, we took them hiking we you know horseback riding um anything and everything that we can do to and and john you can attest to this it's more um it's more management to keep them out of trouble you know you let some guys with with too much free time on their hands and next thing you know they're you know they're they're, they're finagling over to somewhere where they shouldn't be or they're spending money where they don't need to be spending money and next thing you know 
you know, we, we have bigger issues. So aside from the active warm-up or uh, the, the active recovery, uh, we also do it as a people management service to, to make sure that, you know, we, we develop that team aspect and keep them out of trouble. So what you're saying is that if you give a bunch of young professional athletes too much time on their hands, they will find a way to get into trouble. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's weird because I'm I, not a professional I, athlete. I, 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 and I still um, get the trouble. And, and did, did you hear Rob's dig? He's like, John can attest to this. I'm like, yeah. Because <laughs> Rob and I were young one day and we used to get into trouble. No. I suddenly had the image of that uh, the scene in Armageddon where those they had like the last night to go out in the town before they were gonna get launched to the asteroid and they're all in the trucks to like, woo! Uh, what's what was so cool about the training with Roth is it was so uh, unconventional in terms of strength conditioning. Like I had never, you know, it's always like, hey, you're gonna you're gonna take this bar, you're gonna do this, you're gonna you know pull through range motion. We started with isometric holds which is, you know, where you basically develop stability in the joints, which was something I was never taught. I mean, we like, you know, and I remember, you know, talking with Roth, and Roth always had a pretty solid intern program, and so, you know, being, a, a, you know, part of my job was to not only uh, abuse the young interns, but was to get them to quit. <laughs> As, uh, 100%, like, it was fucking awesome. Roth's like, hey, get this guy to quit. I'm like, watch this. I go over there like wet my face all over the guy's shirt and be like, "Oh, I need a towel. Let me get your shirt." Give me fucking leave. But um, but like uh, you know, some some of the early stuff and uh, and I know Ruff's like evolved, but not past where we were. I mean, it was basically in the same stuff we talk about today. Like, if you can't show me stability with a straight arm, how am I going to expect <clears throat> you to bend or or or, or bend the joints? The like, motion. yeah, I mean, if you can't stand erect with a heavy bar on your back in a good stable position and show me you know, good trunk stability, you know, quad, I mean, basically being able to maintain a straight line with a bar on your back, how am I going to ask you to sit below parallel and stand back up? I mean, same thing with, uh, uh, you know, even a push-up. If you can't get yourself into a pipe position and just hold that position, you know, are you really orthopedically sound? Do you have the, you know, the musculature, the stability, the strength to basically be able to bend and do a push-up? And uh, that was something that nobody had ever expressed to me, mm-hmm. and I didn't even understand, and all of a sudden, like, he presents that to me, and I'm like, wow. There's, well, probably more so, like, people can't do that, and then you fucking open the gym and realize yeah. that well, well, everybody who that, 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 that was another fucking uh, huge mindfuck. And, and, you know, what was nice with Roth is Roth, you know, played college football and worked with high-level athletes. And so we were, you know, in a sense, elitist, elitist in that we, uh, you know, we trained. Uh, <laughs> Roth's training group was all, like, you know, high-level people. I mean, we had a bunch of NFL guys, and so everybody – uh, was at a very, very high level. And, and even Roth's personal clients, Bill Stolten, God rest his soul, uh, you know, who, who trained with Roth for years, were really fucking great. Like Bill, who was uh, one of Roth's normal clients, was like a, a business guy. He was phenomenal, dude. He would show up and train in our groups, and if new guys were there, we would give him Bill as a partner, and they're like, who's this fucking old man or this business guy? And Bill would fucking crush him. And it was because the system had worked, and it was this idea of progression and stability and strength. And it was just – it was something that uh, – I remember training with Roth, you know, especially in those older uh, early days and remembering being like, fuck, I wish I had this years ago and to be basically be able to develop it. And I remember we had trained together for a bunch of years, but I remember like a couple years later, I'm like, hey, how come we don't do that stuff anymore? And Roth's like – well, why would you want to do beginner stuff? Like, that was the beginner stuff. Like, now we've progressed into new stuff. 
like the new guys do that. Like there has to be progression. You can't constantly go back and drink from the same well. And I think like that to me was really uh, good. And then when I retired and actually opened the gym, I realized that uh, for a lot of people, they never get out of the beginner stage. Mm-hmm. And that's and what and it, that was I, kind of the time. Well, or that, no, the, uh, who who were we just talking about? About the the map of oh yeah, well the athletic performance, uh, the, uh, yeah, the Rob yeah, Miller Rob deal, Miller. and and I think that was the hardest thing for me. And I remember Roth too, you know, as we over the you know we traveled for fucking many many seminars and used to talk about this, is that there was this idea of like hey as a beginner and then you progress into this finite point of uh, uh, you know expert I guess you could say like this elite I fucking hate using the word elite but this elite <laughs> initiated of, well, said it a it's, lot. it's it's, it's kind of like uh, you know like all of a sudden it becomes like the distance between like a spotlight and like a fucking laser beam mm-hmm. and over that time you know the training becomes more and more refined and you develop all these skills and it kind of ends up pinpointing and what I realized is owning a commercial gym and going around and working with people I realized that 99 99.7 0.9% of the world will never really get out of that beginner stage. And so I think, uh, you know, for us especially, like coming in and working with people still like two or three years later that we're still struggling to do things that we were like, wait a minute, we already taught this. Like, why can't you still do it? And I think like as a, you know, for a guy like Roth especially, you know, you have to, you know, be able to work with athletes that are able to, yeah, yeah, like like if Roth's over there teaching these guys fucking how to do a dead bug in year two, He's probably gonna fucking kill himself and kill them. <laughs> yeah. Tragic loss. Hey, no, I, 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 I know, Rob. I mean, dude, we, we had to do. It's part of the reason I had to get out of owning a commercial gym because I was yeah. either gonna kill myself or kill all of them, and uh, it just becomes that deal. So I mean, for a guy like Rob, I mean, you have to go and work with people that are the best in the world that can basically be able to take your information and, you know, the, the fact that he can work with coaches and be able to like, hey, pull this guy out, let's do this, let's work on this, this, put him back in the water and see improvement is, you know, the difference between, you know, Ruff having a, a smile on his face and Ruff fucking killing people. Ruff, did you have to earn the trust of the coaches or were, were everybody pretty receptive when you jumped on? Well, the coaches, um, I've been working with David Marsh for about, oh. uh, since 2010 so we've had a great relationship prepping the guys for the last Olympics, but um, it, it's been an ongoing fight because there's, you know, when you have guys with gold medals, there, there's egos involved where, um, and especially me coming from a background where I'm not a competitive swimmer. I, I never, you know, I never uh, put a Speedo on and, and trained um, high school or college swimming. Um, and it's really interesting where, you have that again, a an, an adolescent approach, an adolescent system where, what does this guy know? I have a gold medal. Um, what does he know that, and what can he teach me that I don't already know? Um, and and it's been an interesting, um, it, it's been an interesting journey where you know you just have to wait. You have to wait till somebody says uh, until you notice a frustration frustrated look on their face or when you say hey how come i can't lift as much as that guy or um david keeps yelling at me for this how come i can't do that or hey rafael i'm having pain in my shoulder and then all of a sudden that that is an open door invitation for you to say okay well that's happening because these three things and and it's if you know if you know um, your basic fundamentals in terms of physiology and biomechanics, it, it doesn't take much to, to help somebody out because, like I said, there 
they're the same as anybody else. They just happen to be, you know, I've got a guy that's 6'5 with a 7-foot wingspan. And so he's going to have the same problems as you or I, just the fact that he swims at it. You know, he's a, he's a Ferrari in the water. I got one more. So, uh, Raph, one of the most valuable things I took away was essentially being a minimalist as a coach. You don't need anything to still have an impact and success with your, your team or your athlete. Um, and then I recall one of the stories you talked about with University of Tampa, how they didn't have the resources or give you the resources. Could you talk about that process and how that helped you as a coach uh, just kind of evolve your philosophy or develop um, your abilities? Um, you know, it's one of the biggest blessings that I ever had, and I, I always laugh, you know, and, and, you know, John, we've been around the block for a while now. Uh, whenever you see really nice facilities, um, all I could think in my head is, number one is, uh, we're all the same, and we look at an, a, a shiny new package, and we go, wow, this is a nice facility. You walk into University of Oregon, you're like, this is amazing, or you walk into any of the top-tier programs or top facilities in the world, and you'll say, this is a nice program. But I immediately go to my humble developments, and I always say, I, I I almost feel sorry for you because because I didn't have anything at the University of Tampa. It forced me to say, this is what I understand about physiology and anatomy and biomechanics and sports psychology. How can I get my athletes to do what I need them to do without anything? And a lot of the accentuated negative, the manual resistance and the yielding isometric work really was born out of necessity because I didn't have any equipment. I mean, John says it best. I'm sitting there. I'm looking into this um, storage shack underneath the old um, bleachers. And, and all I can think is, I, you know, I've got Deion Sanders coming here in, in three weeks. I don't have shit for equipment. How am I going to get him to do what he needs to do and and not look like an absolute idiot doing it. And so it really, a lot of the things were born out of that of saying, okay, Raphael, you really have to dial in your anatomy, figure out what we want to train, figure out what we want to accomplish, and then start to do that. I mean, anybody out there can, can remember that time where you lost a squat because you lost positioning. And, and we all can go back and say, you know, it might have been yesterday, it might have been a long time ago, but I remember sitting there in college and I go, you know what, my torso fell forward, the bar rolled forward, and I ended up doing this front flip somersault, felt like an idiot. And I remember sitting there going through and saying, listen, the natural way that the body learns is it takes what it already knows and it develops a feed forward feedback system. In your body says, is this what you're supposed to be doing? When I get to the bottom of my squat, my step on my lunge, is this what it's supposed to feel like? If not, my body will start this loop that says, okay, adjust this, move this, turn this, twist this, until I can try to get into that position. And then I found it, it was my job was to create that loop in my athletes and then try to create speed and efficiency of that loop so that an athlete can make those adjustments and say, oh, I'm not in the right position. Oh, my knee isn't in the right position. Oh, my foot is in the right position. So now I can go ahead and make those adjustments to increase injury resistance or uh, that commensurate uh, prevention of an injury. So my humble beginnings really forced me 
but it became a blessing in disguise that allowed me to to uh, to be creative and it forced me to to come up with a lot of protocols that once I once I did have access to some equipment um, it became a pretty comprehensive system and so talk to talk to us about your development or the, the concept of praxis so I got it written down here as, as your test as a coach to see if your training and the tools you're implementing are working uh, so I mean the ultimate test is the field or the pool or the rink so what is this concept of praxis and how did, how did you come in to develop that well praxis really was um, like I said I, I wanted to figure out uh, this is a crazy story but I remember I had a ballerina and she and, and we all know ballerinas have that toe out position and she asked me she goes well why are we doing internal rotation if I'm always toes out and I, I didn't have an answer for her. I knew that we should work internal rotation I knew that we should work external rotation but I really didn't have an answer for her. Um, and then I started to study and watch dance. I, I used to watch their amazing jumps and their bounds and their leaps and how extensive, how dynamic and ballistic it was. Um, and then I started to cross-reference that with all of the knee problems that they were having. And that's where I started to develop what, what I called kinetic creativity and its relationship to praxis. And that is whatever it is that, that the world poses as a problem and that's, you know, can I jump really high and can I land without injuring myself or can I block this defensive end that's trying to bull rush me or can I dunk a ball on a seven-footer who's trying to block me? Um, all of that was how have I prepared my athlete to address those problems? Uh, one of the easiest ways that, I, that I've, I've relayed this to the athlete is um, it's a biomechanical vocabulary. And if you are having a conversation with somebody, imagine losing the use of the letter A. And how effective could you communicate to somebody without sounding like an imbecile? Now, what if you were to lose the letter S? What if you were to lose another letter? And now all of a sudden, could you still converse with somebody? Absolutely. People do it all the time. But you don't sound fluid, you don't sound poetic, you don't sound smooth about your voice, and you're not eloquent. And so that is the way that I relate to my athletes is I want to give you a very robust command of a biomechanical vocabulary so that you can address any type of problem. Um, and, and we do it all the time is, is hopefully they've increased their injury resistance um, and hopefully they've uh, increased their performance. But one of the ways that we constantly test it is, is we throw new skills at them all the time. I'll, I'll literally, you know, and, and this was getting some used to with my athletes here, is I will give instructions, um, and they, they started to get frustrated with it, but then I told them, this is why I want you to do it. I want to see, put your hand here, do this, do a sideline plank, figure four to a get up, go. And then all of a sudden, I want to see how the athlete responds to that because how they respond to it is corrective in nature. They'll, if somebody can't get into a deep squat, then they've got to figure a way to get up. And when you watch them move, movements don't lie. So as you sit there and somebody can say, yeah, yeah, I squat all the time. Oh, yeah? Well, let me see your Turkish get up. Let me see your figure four sideline get up. And next thing you know – you know that there is a problem or you know that, um, and we've always said this, you know, John and I express this all the time. For me, everybody always asks me what the marker of a good athlete is. How do you know a good athlete is a good athlete? Two things, they move well 
And number one, they move well. Number two is they can pick up on new skills really quickly because of that kinetic creativity, because of that practice and their ability to say, I can solve this really easy. It goes back to that theory of athletic problem solving, that uh, if, if movement is a language and, you know, can you communicate uh, better than anybody else. Can you get up and you know, uh, you know, speak and write? And it's it's pretty interesting if you look at movement in terms of language. I mean, it uh, it really kind of gels. It's always funny when uh, uh, I always hear Rob like 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 Rob and I haven't really had a, a deep conversation like this in a while, and uh, everything that comes out is so 100% on time, you know on every, on the observations of what we've done with our athletes and everything, and even my own training. So it's uh it's pretty interesting just to think about. You know, our, our, our great athletes, is there something inherent within them? Is it something developed at a young age? And, um, you know, it all goes back to uh, my theory of the best athletes in the world are the reason because they've had opportunity. That opportunity becomes, uh, you know, really the defining factor. I mean, and Rob, I'm sure you could agree with this. Uh, how many of the top swimmers, um, you know, either had the opportunity to swim more because either their parents were swimmers they had a, like a local pool or there was something unique within them. I mean, I'm sure there was nobody that was like, oh, I, I didn't learn to swim till high school and I just happened to jump in the water and it was really great. Yeah, there's um, we've had one, um, and he was a pretty good athlete. Uh, he never reached, uh, he never really made it to the world-class level, but um, he was a pretty gifted athlete. He, um, I think he was either from Cincinnati or Ohio State, but he had a pretty nasty injury. Um, football. He was a tight end, so he's a big, big guy. And uh, um, he was doing rehab in the pool, and it happened to be that the coach was there, and he was like, "Hey, do you think you could, you know, jump off these blocks and swim to the other end as fast as you can?" And he actually did pretty well. But again, that goes back to presence—the fact that he was, you know, six five with a seven foot wingspan—allowed him to, to to make that transition. Uh, but but the, you're right, John. The, they're starting when they're when they're our kids' age and, and just you know riding that wave and, and figuring out if they can they can stick it through that mental block and, and get past the uh, the doldrums of it and eventually turn into a, a lifelong habit. Well, I mean, I I know for uh, I'm sure for Raider I see all the pictures, but uh, yeah, Jamie and Kelly, um, you know, we have a pool and uh, you know just out of necessity, us having a pool, I had a like a, a swim coach come in that she works on one day a week. And they could do all the strokes. They could swim across the pool. They could do everything at three years old. And now at four, uh, like we went to a swim party, and all the other kids are like kind of like splashing around. A couple kids got like floaties on or like a vest, and the girls are literally doing like cannonballs off of the wall, swimming underneath, <laughs> doing this stuff. And uh, people are like, uh, "Do your kids swim a lot?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we have a fucking pool. What do you think? Like, what do you think? I wasn't gonna harm them with the skills, like, with that I was gonna have a pool and like let them fucking drown." And uh, just, they don't, yeah, just well, no, I, and and I mean, people are like, "You worried about your kids?" I'm like, "No, not at all." I'm like, "They, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I, I don't go in and drink beer while they're out swimming in the pool." But like, you know, if the pool's open, they are good enough to be able to, you know, do some stuff. I mean, even when we were out on my brother's boat, uh, the girls were kind of running around on the side. My dad was so nervous. He's like, "What if they fall in?" I'm like, "Well, good thing they can fucking swim, and I hope they do fall in and teach them a lesson." The only bad thing is I'm gonna have to go in after them. But, uh, <laughs> No, I mean, it's, and it's pretty uh, interesting when I went back and just started talking with a lot of different you know, people that had you know, either developed athletes or were high-level athletes themselves. And the one thing that was universal was this idea of opportunity. Um, you know, the, the opportunity presents itself. And, uh, you know, I always run into people 
and I, I remember when people would ask me this question, uh, I didn't really know how to answer it. Like, um, you know, how do I make sure my kid's a good athlete? I, I want my kid to do this. And I, the analogy I give him is like, um, if, you know, for the same reason that let's say you want your kid to speak Chinese, um, hoping that your kid speaks Chinese isn't going to teach them Chinese. You're going to have to get them a tutor. You're going to have to put them in an opportunity mm -hmm. to learn Chinese. You're going to have to put them in some integration. And you might have to send them to China to truly learn uh, the tonal differences in the language. And uh, that's how they're going to learn to speak Chinese. One day a week of 20 minutes in class of, of Chinese class isn't going to speak Chinese. And the same thing with athletic movement and, and all these other different things. Like, um, And if you look back even at some of the development stuff, the idea of like you know changing orientation where now you know swimming, it's kind of weightless. And you, you made a great point about the idea that once you're in the water, every movement is resisted. And, uh, like, there's no other environment really like that. The idea of, like, doing some form of sliding and, like, different movement stuff. And you start talking about balance. But I think that swimming stuff is so important for that orientation and really just that idea of resistance. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you know, people ask us all the time, and, and we work with the – to change the culture – um, we know that we have to go to these young athletes. We have to start with them very young. Um, and, and Colin Jones, the first African-American gold medalist, um, uh, is here. And he always talks about um, he drowned as a kid. Uh, he was six years old, and um, he was at a public pool, and he drowned. He, he went unconscious. They had to revive him, and his mom threw him into swim lessons. Um, and it was really interesting that he talks about it, um, and, and I've heard the story numerous times and across the board with, with our other athletes that um, he said he wasn't even that good. Um, he went all the way to college. He was good enough to get a scholarship at NC State, but he wasn't good. He wasn't on anybody's international radar. Um, Antonio Tarver talks about it all the time when you know there were eight other boxers with him growing up, and he goes, he wasn't even in the top two or three. He was the only one that stuck with it, um, and it wasn't until later in life where some of those other guys ended up in jail or dead, and you know, it turns out that yeah, he is pretty good, but he really didn't blossom and mature. Um, so our advice to these parents and, and people that say, hey, I want an elite-level athlete are two things. Number one, like you said, they need a lot of help, but to stay the course. You know, it, it's gonna, there's going to come a point in time. Um, it was really interesting where – uh, we had uh, one of the top guys from the uh, the Boy Scouts of America, and he said um, they try to push the kids to get their Eagle Scouts before puberty now because they know that once they hit that age, once they hit that 14, 15-year-old, if they're not really close, they'll give up on it just for, for a number of reasons, girls and you know cars and sports and yada, yada, yada. So – uh, the Boy Scouts of America really try to get encourage the kids to just start gobbling up all of those, uh, you know, those little merit badges as fast as possible, so that they can get close enough so they see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and it's really interesting that you know if they don't stay the course, um, then the other aspect that we tell our athletes all the time is, if you want your kid or you want to be an elite level athlete, elite, um, you got to accept being crazy. You have to accept that your kid is going to be crazy. Because there's things that the kid has to do um, that are not going to be within social norms. I mean, you look at a Michael Phelps and you think about what he's been through for somebody to accomplish winning eight gold medals in one Olympics is an amazing feat. 
and nobody ever thinks of what it took, you know, to get there about everything that you gave up and and everything leading to that point of developing an obsessive compulsive child of developing a kid with ADD and channeling that ADD towards accomplishing certain athletic goals. Um, so stay the course. Make sure that you, you get a lot of help with this kid if, if that's truly what the kid wants. Make sure they stay the course, and and it's okay to be crazy. You actually want to encourage that, you know, a, that that little loco and cabeza craziness. Well, yeah, no, the uh, Rocky hit it on the out of the park. I mean, every other uh, you know person I talked to, actually, the, the the biggest defining deal for high level athletes was actually late bloomers. That, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that kid like the, the J.J. Watts or, you know, these other guys like, hey, I was on nobody's radar. I was kind of a late bloomer. I was a walk on. And then all of a sudden I blossomed at some point. And I remember somebody asked me about it. And I was like, when I was 18 years old, I was uh, six, four, like 250 pounds. And when I went to college, I didn't own a razor and I grew two inches and put on 50 pounds in college. And uh, it was, you know, like, and I remember my, my freshman roommate was like, hey, uh, how come there's only, like, two razors in there? And I'm like, well, because I don't shave. And he's like, well, you, what, what do you mean you don't shave? I was like, well, I, I don't own a razor. I don't shave. And, like, he gave me this look because he had, like, a full beard and a chest of hair. <laughs> and, like, he kind of, like, made fun of me about it. And then uh, as I, like, proceeded to grow two inches and, and, like, get all bigger and stronger, I looked at him and I was like, well, that's what you get for fucking peeking at 14 years old, you fuck. <laughs> yeah, oh, dude, you, you were this size as a freshman in high school? Yeah, just a little, yeah, basically. <laughs> but, so, I mean, you, you know, like that, that whole kind of late bloomer thing, I mean, if, if you look at a lot of high-level athletes, it's that kind of, you know, like, hey, I was a late bloomer, I wanted to do this, I continue to work, and they almost develop the skills and the want, and then all of a sudden everything catches up. I wonder if things are too easy, too early. If like that kind of ends up being a, a hindrance in some way, in some way, expect it to be easier or something. Unless you're a female gymnast, and and then if you haven't got a gold medal by 14, you're probably not going to have one. But that that want that you said, John, I think is an incredibly important point because if you look at uh, the college players, like like Vince Young, classic example, it, the game came too easy for him, so all of a sudden everybody is an athlete as soon as he gets to the NFL, and he has has to work, and he can't. He doesn't know how. Well, the thing which is interesting in the NFL, and, and fucking dude, you heard you guys say this, and Roth can attest to having worked with so many of them, uh, you have to have, like, an inherent uh, kind of fight within you, and, you know, and, and like, uh, it's like, you know, my it's like the pit bulls I've had. I mean, uh, like, my one little dog, my, my new pup, Vinny, he will literally battle with the rope until he physically cannot stand up. Uh, he will like like that fight within that dog. He will not give up, and he will live. I mean, to the point where like I'm tired, and like you gotta like shake his arms and I'll literally mess with him until he's so physically tired he, he has to lay down. Like that's the kind of fight. And I think for some people maybe it's it comes too early or whatever. But uh, you know, a guy like Vince Young, who is such a gifted athlete, never really had that fight within him. And then all of a sudden you get to the NFL. And that fight becomes so important. I mean, you look at a guy like Tom Brady, um, you know, who always had that kind of fire within him and all of a sudden gets his opportunity and is ready to go. I mean, not the most gifted athlete, but was so technical in other ways. So I think uh, when you get to the NFL, you almost have to have, you know, all of a sudden the, the, the playing field becomes level and it becomes that, like, do I want it enough? I mean, uh, I don't know if I ever told you guys, but I played against a guy that had all of his kids' faces tattooed on his arms. And uh, I remember, like, looking and seeing all those kids' faces, and I asked him about it, and he's like, he goes, I look at these little motherfuckers before every play, and remember I got to feed them. And that was what was, 
his fucking defining factor to go out there and beat wholesale ass was the fact that he had like six fucking kids tattooed on his fucking arms. And I remember like looking and being like, those are all your kids? And he was like, yeah, I got a lot of fucking mouths to feed. And that dude was fucking pissed off about it. And I don't know if he was pissed off because he had a big paternity suit or there were some hungry fucking kids, but that guy went out and played. And, um, like, the ladies nagging him to get the well, groceries. Yeah, I mean, but, like, you know, people always ask me about it, and they uh, they were like, well, you know, uh, white middle-class kid from, from you know, Palos Verdes. I mean, how did you go? And I'm like, well, obviously you never met my mom. So, if, <laughs> 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 so <laughs> it comes I, in a lot clearer. Doris really likes Roth, though, right? She loves Raphael. Yeah. I love yeah, Doris. Dude, my, my, my parents love Raphael. One of my favorite stories is when Roth would come visit, uh, he would go hang out with my mom and dad and not my girlfriend, and my girlfriend was all fucking buzzer. And I was like, well, that's yeah, that's the story you were Because you were a fucking nightmare. <laughs> Rob's like, yeah, I'm going to go hang out with these little John's <laughs> So it's really interesting, and, and John, you give really good insight, and I laugh all the time when I have these young football players that want to go to the NFL, and they, they always ask me, what are the attributes that I really need to work on? And you end up just stealing their soul because I say, do you want the truth or do you want what you want to hear? And everybody wants to hear, oh, I ran a 40 and I did my bench press and blah, blah, blah. And I go, listen, I, you know, we've been around the NFL long enough. You're not nasty enough. You don't have enough of an attitude to play at the next level. And it's something that nobody, you know, they don't even talk about it. They're starting to. They talk about it at the combine is, you know, so-and-so has a nasty streak. That is like one of the biggest performance pluses that you can give an NFL, especially a lineman. It's like yeah. it's got a nasty streak. And they, they, they won't say anything about your 5-10-5 or your 40 or blah, blah, blah. But any coach that, that's within that, that, that's in the know, says, wow. Then, then we want this kid. You know, yeah. it's just funny that you sitting there like, ah, oh, what's his vertical? What's John's vertical? What's his? Yeah, you know, nobody really gives a shit. He's, you know, the kid plays nasty. Yeah, I mean, the uh, it was kind of interesting. Like, it, uh, and and this was a hard thing for me to really uh, kind of tell people about the combine. Is like the combine really isn't anything other than a check mark. Like, I remember when I went to the Combine, um, you know, I, I ran, what, like, a 503 electronic. I had a 34-inch vert. I mean, I got fucked on the bench press and only got, like, 28 reps. Um, but, like, you know, all these things. And I remember going through all these endless interviews, and I remember one of the coaches uh, who came out to work with me, I was like, oh, I did pretty well. And he was, like, kind of, like, shrugged his shoulders a little bit. And I was like, well, did I not do He's like, no. He's like, you're exactly who we knew you to be. And I, I kind of was like, well, like, what do you mean? And he's like, dude, he goes, honestly, he goes, the combine, we have years of tape on you. He goes, when we go to the combine, we know exactly who you are. We've talked to your coaches. We've talked to everybody. We've seen you on film. The combine is our opportunity for us to see and for you to validate all of that stuff. Now you can go in there and shit the bed. And then we know you're not the guy that, that we thought you were, or you can go in there and just be the exact same person we know yet. We knew he was going to do about that. And we put a check mark that you are, you know, you prepared for the test. You went out and trained, uh, you know, you uh, did all the little things to prepare yourself for this big fucking job opportunity. And um, you're the person we knew you to be. Now, you know, there's occasionally like the Mike Mamoulis of the world to go out and just blow up the combine. And he's on, you know, this kind of guy from Villanova was on everybody's radar, goes out, puts out this amazing deal. And some fucking coach or GM or head owner goes, oh, I want that guy. And then that guy gets picked first. But for the most part, most guys, it's really just like a check mark. Validation. And it's a validation. And I think like what happens is if there's all these 
you know, people out there that are like, oh, if I have, you know, 30 reps at the bench press, then now, you know, that'll be, no, dude. If you're a turd, 30 reps on the bench press or 40 reps on the bench press isn't going to all of a sudden unlabel you a turd. You're just a strong turd. And, uh, like, that was what was really interesting, like, having all of a sudden uh, gone through that process and then been a player and seeing young guys come in. And I remember always being like, oh, and they're like, oh, we're going to get this new lineman. He got this, this at the combine. I'm like, oh, great. Awesome. I fucking hope he does great. And then we come out and the first day of pads, he'd be out there trying to hit and have a great time. I'm like, yeah, no problem. That's great. Keep keep doing it. Keep doing it. Because here's the thing, motherfucker. I'm going to keep this pace for 26 weeks. Mm -hmm. In two weeks, you're going to look like somebody's shit on your face. And sure enough, about two weeks into training camp, all of a sudden you come in and they're moving slow and looking tired. At that point, I'd be like, oh, this is where I get my energy. Let's fight. And that's when I would fucking turn it up. And like, you know, and even the guys that would come play hard in the beginning of the season, we were always like, dude, we got a fucking postseason ahead of us. Like we, uh, you know, the NFL only is about what happens in November. And so I think like the difference between the young guys and really the veterans or the guys that even come in and play for a long time is that ability to sustain work over a great period of time. And that's really the difference between the guys. I mean, and it's, it's really like that in any sport. I mean, you see a guy like Phelps who put in that volume of work and then steps away all of a sudden rekindles his passion and probably goes back and will be fucking better than he was because now he has like focus and clarity, not just like, Hey, this is what my life was. And I, uh, that's fucking exciting to see that guy come back. Yeah, I'm excited. It's a, it's kind of a, a lot of people hate him, but I, I absolutely, uh, if you ever get a chance to read his book, it's a, it's an amazing thing because it talks about, um, why are you still in it? And he said, yeah, I won eight gold medals. He goes, but I didn't hit my targets. And he had certain performance variables that he wanted to swim at, and he missed those. And it's just amazing dealing with that caliber of athlete of, of how many of us would be happy with one gold medal. Um, he hit eight of those, but he still wasn't happy because um, even though he got a gold medal, he swam a 141 and not a 140. 140 kind of issue. So it's a, a pretty amazing thing to, to get into that head. Well, don't, don't you also think for him that this has been his, his whole life, his identity, everything he's done. And he probably stepped away and realized like, like this is who I am. And you know, like that's, that's really the, uh, the interesting thing, you know, like with, I mean, the NFL, especially, I mean, you basically train your entire life, for this specific job, and then all of a sudden, from the time you're 14, this is your whole life, and then all of a sudden, 20 years later, in your mid-30s, all of a sudden, they're like, "Now you can't do your job anymore. Get the fuck out of here." And then you got to do something else. That you know, that's why a lot of these guys have so many disorders and problems. And you see a lot of these NFL guys having so many issues is because they don't really know who they are, or you know, how they identify or how they fit within the grand scheme outside of the game. And so you see a guy like Phelps, who uh, probably even more so. I mean. The fact that these guys train in their entire lives for one fucking moment, I mean, he probably stepped away and was like, man, uh, when I was swimming, it made everything so much easier. I was focused. I knew exactly what I had to do, and uh, you know, and, and I, I want to do this forever, which is, is fucking awesome. Yeah, he got the passion and the love back, which is amazing. I just read that uh, Charles Woodson wants to come back for another season. <clears throat> wow, that's got to be 18 years for him. Oh, my God. Uh, he was, but he's performing. He's leading the league in interceptions. That's Him crazy. And, uh, didn't he get hurt? Didn't he tear his uh, ACL or, or uh, Achilles or something? 
I'm not I, even sure. I've been traveling for six weeks. I got to get. That could be Steve Smith. I know yeah, Steve Smith. he uh, yeah Steve Smith hurt himself. But Charles Woodson, I think, did he win the Heisman in '98? God, it was a long time ago, so brother. He, he's a year older than. Jeez, he's been and he came out early, so he's got to be up 17, 18 years. God, which is a long time. I, I mean. Uh, you know what though, but I mean, uh, Jerry Rice and those guys played that long. I mean, what did Tony yeah. play like seventeen years? Yeah, Jerry, Largent. Yeah, Steve Largent. Um, you know, and then you got a uh, Clay Matthews and his brother Bruce. I mean, what did they play twenty plus? A dislocated yeah. shoulder. Dislocated shoulder, Charles yeah. Wilson. Yeah, yeah, yeah just, I knew he got hurt. I saw that. Man, when he was with Green Bay, I remember like the Packers first got him. Um, they also got Al Harris. What? The dirty one. Dude, what? So dominated. Like, they played straight up man and dude. fucking just smoked everybody. Al Harris, he gave himself. Al Harris is a bad motherfucker, man. Al Harris, I played in Philly with, uh, he gave himself the nickname of Moi. <laughs> so, so so that was his nickname. And, like, we just like, like, like he, he'd be like, you mean Moi? And he talked about himself as, like, it was the fucking most hilarious thing. By far one of the. <laughs> craziest, uh, most interesting, lockdown, solid motherfuckers you ever want to play with. Like, I always think of, like, uh, you know, Tom Cable, who I played offensive line with, said the way that he, or he was my coach, the way you pick your team is actually uh, you go around and you pick the motherfuckers you want to go walk down a dark alley with to go fight some people. And Al Harris was one of those dudes that you'd be like, call moi, moi, go show up anywhere, <laughs> fucking beat some ass. Uh, I mean, dude, he... Uh, yeah, he's he's a fucking cool cat and a big ass fucking skinny corner dude. I remember uh, Al like uh, ended up we were in training camp and he um he he lost like a pound of fucking weight and went into like full uh, body cramping and so they had to give him an IV but they couldn't get the IV in because his arm was fucking cramping so bad. And I remember uh, he was they, they they were like had him sitting there in a pair of shorts and that motherfucker was so fucking lean you could see his fucking heart and like all of his muscles. And I was like, damn. And that dude didn't really train, uh, drank Cokes, ate fucking McDonald's, and was still 4% body fat. So, uh, <laughs> you know, like, there's, he's a cool cat. He was from Florida. And, uh, yeah, but, yeah, dude, they, they had some fucking players, dude. I mean, you think back on those type of guys, I mean, they, they were fucking lockdowns. Now it's like the Packers can't win a game. They're, they're uh, around here, they're calling it the Ditka curse. I don't know if. Uh, you guys seen that commercial, but there's a commercial that was released where Mike Ditka was wearing a Packers sweater vest. Yeah, yeah. And since he since that commercial aired, Green Bay's lost every game. Oh. <laughs> Dude, they're calling it the Ditka curse. Uh, that is great. That is uh, great. Dave, we got anything else? I, I think, Roth, do you want to talk about anything else? No, I'm good. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm getting ready to saddle up with these um, sprinters. They're going to come in and lift. Uh, they're they are by far uh, my favorite group to work with here. These guys will get after. They they know how to suffer a little bit. Nice. Well, if there's anybody that knows how to fucking get them to suffer, and more importantly, apply the proper suffering, it's you. As uh, Tech still has some PTSD from dealing with you. I nice slap them about it. Rap, you do uh, you bring 45 pound plates in the pool? We do, and you know the funny thing is um, now at the uh, at our other facility we have a it's a full dive well so it's a 18 foot deep pool, and um, the the guys are absolute fish. It's it's a completely different story. I mean, 
um, some of the guys will train with our with our candidates, our SEAL candidates, our uh, our MARSOC candidates, and uh, they're just absolutely amazed that you know some of our guys can do a three four minute breath hold where we're doing drown proofing and you know I'll say drown proof for six minutes today, and you know a couple of my guys will come up for one breath in six minutes. Jesus, what's, and you're what's just drown, drown proofing? You used to call it just drowning when I was. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> you know it's drowning. They know it is uh, drown proofing. Drown proofing, correct. Well, all right. Thanks, yeah. Roth, for taking the time, man. It's always great to catch up with you. We got to get you, I'm sure, again in a few months and see how everything's going. Absolutely. Thanks, guys, for having me on the uh, on the Power Athlete Radio. It's always a blast. No problem, amigo. Good, good to talk to you. Thank all right, you. talk to you guys later. Thanks a lot, Roth. See you guys. Bye. Be careful, Texas. <laughs> <laughs>